You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Hallie Perry. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We are open every day, 10 a.m. to 10, 10 p.m., or shop online at skylightbooks.com. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm here with Paul Tremblay, whose new book, The Paul Bearers Club, comes out in July. Paul Tremblay has won the Bram Stoker, British Fantasy, and Massachusetts Book Awards and is the author of Growing Things, The Cabin at the End of the World, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, A Head Full of Ghosts, and the crime novels The Little Sleep and No Sleep Till Wonderland. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Entertainment Weekly Online, and numerous years best anthologies. He has a master's degree in mathematics and lives outside Boston with his family. Uh, welcome, Paul. Thank you so much. Happy to be here, Hallie. Yeah. Um, so can you kick us off with a little reading from the Paul Bearers Club? Yes, can do. Um, so I'm going to read from the opening chapter. I won't read everything, so I'm gonna, I'll skip around a little bit. So it'll, it'll be a fairly short reading. But this is from the opening chapter, which is titled, If I Told You. I am not Art Barbara. That is not my birth name, but at the risk of contradicting myself within the first few lines of a memoir, I am Art Barbara. Imagine my personage, the whole of me, I prefer that phrase to spirit or soul, exists in Plato's world of forms. That me, the one slicked in the amber of Greek philosophy, is Art Barbara. Sorry, mom and dad, the name you assigned was a valiant effort, but it does not sum up who I was, who I am, or who I will become. Art Barbara is bold, declarative, striking. And upon first hearing it spoken, your brow furrows, head tilts, and mouth smirks. Admit it, your face is in thrall and acting on its own. You might know a Barbara or even an art, but you haven't met, nor do you know an art Barbara. I'm going to skip past like <laughs> a paragraph of art describing what his name sounds like in a Boston accent, which is, you know, wonderful, but I'm going to skip over that part. <laughs> um, I saw the name written on the bathroom wall of Club Babyhead Spring of 1991. The letters were capitalized, angular slashes of neon green ink, a cave painting glowing in the lovely darkness of the early 1990s. I have never forgotten it, and by the end of this memoir, neither will you. Isn't time strange? Time is not linear, but a deck of cards that is continuously shuffled. I will change all names to protect the innocent and not so. I will take great care to choose the names appropriately, as astounding and beyond belief the goings-on are to be detailed, or goings-on to be detailed are, the names will be the only fictions. Beyond the act of communication, sharing my story, experience, and life, exploring fear and fate and the supernatural, for the lack of a better word, and the unknown universe, big and small, vulnerable, uh, vulnerable confessions and base gossip, perhaps a lame excuse or two for lifelong disappointments and why I am and where I will be, the purpose is hope. Hope that one reader or 1,001 readers might empathize with the why behind the poor decisions I made, make, and most certainly will make. The chapter ends and then right on the next page is a handwritten note uh, left by a character that I'm sure we'll discuss and I'll just read her opening paragraph. I assume you intended for me to find this. Maybe that's a lot for me to assume, maybe it's not. I mean, you left it on your cluttered desk with a literal yellow bow tied around the manuscript. 
Holy shit, I'll bet I have a lot to say about this book based on the opening chapter. Aunt Barbara, Jesus, dude. We'll stop there. Thank you so much. Um, sure. It's really wonderful to hear that in your voice, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're so happy to have you here today. Um, I guess I would love to start by just kind of talking about how you got to writing after um, studying mathematics and and what that journey has kind of looked like for you. Yeah, I guess it's sort of like a weird, happy accident of a sort. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I, I went to grad school for mathematics, but right before uh, I went to grad school, so my, my second semester senior year of undergraduate, to fulfill some requirements or a requirement, I should say, I ended up taking like an English 101 or a Lit 101 class as a second semester senior, which is kind of strange. Um, but for me, it was one of those, I don't know, stereotypes of like, hey, you know, the English teacher is really cool and hits it off, you know, hits off with the students. And in my case, the English teacher was a, or the English professor was a big punk music fan. And that really sort of helped me connect, oh, wow. you know, <laughs> with what was going on. Um, and in that class, I read uh, Joyce Carol Oates's Where Have You Going? Where Have You Been? Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget reading that story because after reading it, I was like, whoa, you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know people wrote stuff like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and shortly after that, I graduated uh, and I just started a relationship with uh, Lisa, who's now my wife. Um, and she bought me Stephen King's The Stand for my 22nd birthday. Oh, wow. So then, you know, I went off to UVM, Vermont for two years of math while we did the long distance relationship thing. And while I was doing that, I just, I fell in love with reading. I read all of the King and through him, you know, I discovered like Clive Barker and Shirley Jackson and others. Um, yeah, I don't know, like at, after two years, you know, I got a, a teaching job, a math teaching job, and I had this weird itch, inexplicable itch to try writing a story because not that I knew how the hell to do that, but I don't know, it was just this itch that wouldn't go away until I actually tried writing. So for the first like five, I'll end it with this, the first like five years of the 90s, the latter half of the 90s, I should say, you know, I clearly had a want for some sort of artistic outlet because uh, I had taught mm -hmm. myself how to play guitar. So I was messing around with songwriting a little bit and also messing around with writing. Uh, and maybe sadly, <laughs> to, you know, sadly for myself, I found out I was a better writer than musician. So <laughs> right, right, writing ended up taking over and I stuck with that. Yeah, well, there's maybe a little more um, money in music, but I'm glad you, <laughs> you're a better writer. Oh, thanks. Um, and I mean, math is a language, right? So I feel sure. like perhaps, and many of, and I'm excited to talk to you about form, but a lot of your novels, you know, are clearly very um, carefully plotted and like a formula almost. Mm. So I, I'm not actually like surprised that that pivot happened um, from math to mm to horror <laughs> <laughs> well usually people react in horror to the math part of it you know mm -hmm. which is a joke but it's also the truth <laughs> yeah but no yeah. i agree i mean i definitely think there are some i don't know there, there are more math writers out there than you would think like mm -hmm. I, I feel like i happily happily discover a few uh here yeah. and there maybe i mean the most well-known author besides like science fiction authors mm -hmm. but uh you know friend and mentor Stuart onan uh you know an amazing novelist and has been for over 20 years he started off as an engineering major. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. You know, which is more like he could actually apply math, which I can't. No. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not quite apples to apples, but it's close enough. I mean, it's, it's definitely like, yeah, apples to peaches. Apples to peaches, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so in the part you 
read there, you um, kind of illustrated the, the call and response nature of the Paul Bearers Club. And I'm curious how that form developed. Um, and if you could just talk a little bit about how the form is working in the novel and, sure. and how you landed on that. Yeah, so, um, so the, the idea for the Paul Bearers Club, I sort of stumbled across like a student at my school uh, trying to start a Paul's Bearers Club as is described in the novel. Oh, wow. Uh, where, where they, uh, where he, well, the student anyway, he was gonna volunteer at funeral homes to serve elderly and homeless that don't have any or, or very many living relatives, which is a really sweet thing to do. But of course, hearing that as a horror writer, I was like, oh my God, I have to use that somehow. Yeah, it's um, so scary. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, this really, uh, you know, the student, uh, at my, let me back up a little bit. At my school on Monday mornings, which is probably isn't the best time to do it because it's like after the weekend and no one wants to be there. But every Monday morning, we pile in to a school-wide assembly and they do senior speeches and stuff like that. So I was half asleep when this kid made the announcement. But the, but the kid that made the announcement was like, oh, I had him as a freshman. He was you know, more of a quiet kind of personality. Um, you know, certainly, you know, not like, <laughs> not like the most popular kid in campus, not because, not because of who he is, but just because of his quiet sort of shy nature. Mm -hmm. uh, all of which to say is like, when, when that happened, I sort of instantly thought about myself in high school um, and sort of put myself into his shoes almost instantly. So I'm like, okay, I think this thing is going to be a found memoir where I'm sort of imagining some alternate history me <laughs> who renamed himself Art Barber, apparently, uh, that, that came later um, as sort of, you know, the protagonist of the story. Um, you know, it's funny, I didn't start writing the book right away. I just sort of let the idea sit there for a few mm -hmm. months because this was like November of 2019 when when the, the Paul Bearers Club sort of title fell into my lap. Oh, wow. But um, I'd say shortly, you know, at some point, I think I knew it came with knowing that there was going to be this strange person who shows up to the funerals as well. And I was like, oh, because it's a found memoir, like who finds it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I figured, you know, the person that Art names Mercy finds it. Yeah. I was like, oh, she's, she's going to have to like, you know, have her say. So that's how it's really spun out of there. And, you know, once that, once I sort of stumbled upon that, I was really excited <laughs> to write it. I don't know. Like, as you mentioned, I guess I do my other works sometimes use other, I don't know, narrative techniques for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, I don't know, and th those things excite me. I'm a sucker for like a, a new way or an interesting way, even if it's visual to tell, like to tell a story in text, mm -hmm. um, you know, with House of Leaves being one of my favorite books. You know, yeah. the, the, the hard part or the trick is I always try to make sure that if I am gonna use something like that, it has to be like part of the story. It has to be there. Like you couldn't tell the story another way or the story would be, lesser for not having told it that way. So I hope that's the case here where, you know, so this character that Art names Mercy is sort of like a friend slash frenemy over, over 30 years. Mm -hmm. Not only does she comment at the end of every chapter, you know, she can't help herself and starts writing notes in the margins, um, you know, as you go deeper into the book. Um, which is also just kind of very reflective of her personality as well. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. <clears throat> um, and so your your novels just kind of generally often center around a relationship um, or, you know, relationships between family or friends. Uh, how do you approach character building? Like, I know you said Art Barbara is perhaps a, a younger 
you, um, where did, where did mercy come from? Um, it's a great question. So I think part of the fun, like with mercy was like, I was never going to, I knew this was first person. Well, it was going to be two first persons, but mercy was going to sort of be purposefully be vague about who she actually is or who art claims her to be. I don't think that's mm-hmm. a big spoiler. So for me, that was, a, that was, a, I thought it was kind of freeing and fun for, for mercy because really she only like to build her character. It's through what she does and obviously what she says in the margins and like, you know, we get, we get arts observations of her, but I feel like I, I could hide stuff about her background because of, um, I guess, because of the narrative format. So, yeah. um, so that also meant like I needed her to have like a really strong voice <laughs> and maybe yeah. even overpowering in some ways. Um, but, but it also fits their relationship too, I hope, you know, sort of, I mean, arts text is really sort of overwrought and at times self-pitying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted it to be that way because, you know, here is someone who's struggling with, you know, struggling, you know, the daily struggle of what, you know, just, you know, not feeling confident when he's a teenager and that sort of carries over into an adult. And I don't know, I wanted that to also reflect sort of the time period that most of this takes place in, like the 80s and 90s. I wanted the art to sound almost as, you know, mopey as a Bob Mould or Cure song, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and Mercy's there to sort of call him on his bullshit, but also try to, I don't know, she, she's really trying to help him even though she's also maybe destroying parts of them too. Yeah, yeah, she, and she, because she has found it and is commenting, um, you know, without his input, perhaps she does have right. this, this strange power over the narrative, which is really fascinating um, to watch that shift. Uh, oh, something you said was a nice segue. I was curious about how you manage um, the kind of, Oh, what's the word? How, like when when you give the reader information, um, because I mean you did, you said you could keep a lot of her backstory hidden, but you know there are twists and turns and things that happen. How do you when you're writing the novel kind of um, manage the flow of information to the reader? Oh, that's a good question. I think I really. I don't think I have anything concrete to say other than, you know, I try to really go by feel. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and usually I'll have some, some sort of scenes set in my head somewhat. Uh, mm-hmm. But say typically I know like the beginning of a story and the end, and that's really like getting from A to Z, all the middle parts. <laughs> yeah. Um, although I would say in this case, the end was really vague. Um, so this book, I feel like more than some others was, was kind of a challenge to write, even though so much of it was autobiographical mm-hmm. in ways that are obvious and maybe not so obvious. Mm-hmm. So it became, diff- you know, and Mercy helped, uh, hopefully I helped like <laughs> keep things in line, like keep the story going. Yes. <laughs> um, even, even with, with that said, like my first draft, I turned into my editor. I ended up cutting like 30 pages um, or about 10,000 words roughly mm-hmm. of, and it was mainly, <laughs> you know, art whinging, I guess. Although there was, <laughs> There was one big scene that I cut out that the the rules that were set up for the maybe supernatural occurrences in the book, there was a mm-hmm. scene that I cut that didn't really fit those rules. So I thought it was confusing, which it definitely was. Okay. Uh, so I don't know if I answered your question, but because I guess I sort of go by feel in terms of what what is hidden and not hidden. I mean, but, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess I would say, you know, I would let, I sort of let art lead that because I knew Mercy would always have the chance to, to, 
to offer otherwise. <laughs> to rewrite history a bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, what you see, you mentioned that, um, and this question is perhaps for people who are interested in writing uh, books that are not um, completely realism, um, the rules that you have in place, how does, how do you develop those um, rules and, and enforce them in your writing? Jeez, huh. um, maybe that's where the math, math logic part comes in. Probably. <laughs> um, yeah, it's fine. Like, so I, I would say of the recent run of novels that I've you know, written and published since 2015, mm -hmm. I feel like this, no, I feel this book certainly I think had the most the most sort of like wild out there potential supernatural. I mean, uh, elements or as described in the book. Yeah. Um, compared to something like where, you know, a head full of ghosts that I wrote. Yeah, it played with like a possession story, but I tried to really root it in realism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, similarly with a few other books. So here, once like weird stuff happens, it gets really weird. So that was to me, like one of the newer challenges of, the, of writing this novel was, you know, trying to keep in my own head, like, trying to keep it mysterious, but also sort of have, you know, have what art might describe as supernatural events, have that at least follow some sort of pattern or, or logic. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, so I, I ended up taking out like a big scene that actually I thought was quite effective by itself, but it, because it didn't really fit with the rest of the book, it, I think it would have been a mistake to include it. Um, yeah, so no, it was it was definitely a challenge. And part of it is, I don't know, I'm such a card carrying agnostic skeptic by day. Like when I do, when I write novels, it's hard for me to to commit to something really supernatural happening. Mm -hmm. um, I think honestly, it's part of it. Um, you know, because that part of me is in there. I, I try to, you know, I try to chip away at that that skeptic's brain, and hopefully the re you know I try to imagine the reader's skeptic brain too. Yeah. You know, hopefully that means, oh, this feels somewhat realistic. Like this could happen. Mm -hmm. Because you know we have a because we have a hard time identifying if something is supernatural is happening or not. Yeah, I was gonna, the the maybe is so powerful. Um, I think just like quite simply to build fear um, in the reader or maybe just me. But um, yeah, no, I agree. The question is is what's scary. I think you know, like I don't know when I'm watching a monster movie. It's like once the monster is revealed, it becomes less scary um so yeah so keeping that kind of like question alive is something that you do so well um and is, is quite effective um <laughs> did you do any research for this book did you go to um you know did you act as a right. player did you do anything <laughs> uh you know i didn't um yeah, I didn't go to any funeral homes for that part of it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I live in a very sort of Catholic. New England is there's a ton of Catholics. You can't <laughs> can't swing whatever sort of implement you want to swing without hitting Catholic. So I've I've been to you know my fair share of of wakes um, and stuff like that in New England. So I didn't feel like I had to do too much research there. Um, although some more of the research came from Mercy's backstory. Mm. um and you know i guess i don't think this is a huge spoiler if we were to talk about like i called her mercy brown who's uh a somewhat famous uh figure from some a, a weird corner of new england folk uh, folklore 
mm-hmm. uh, as it relates to sort of a, I guess we call it like a New England type of vampire. Yeah. Um, so that part of it, like, I felt kind of stupid. It's like, how did I not know Mercy Brown's story living here my whole life? And, you know, I did some research into it. It was pretty clear that a lot of people knew and talked about this. And, um, you know, even people go visit her grave. <laughs> I, I visited it. And, you know, there's people leaving stuff there. It's, it's, it's weird. <laughs> wow. I want to visit her grave. That's so cool. It's really easy to get to. It's like, it's almost disappointing. Like, <laughs> like oh, it's in this really old graveyard. And like, okay. And, you know, it's really off like a main road. You just pull There's off. Like she's, a like, parking she's barely off the road. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That is. Yeah. The may. You know. The maybe. That's like you. You erase right. maybe of where her grave is. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about the the language in the book, both because there are two first person narrators, and they both have very distinct voices. Um, but also because I could, I kept writing, like writing down the little note, like very playful language, like the language is playful and um, almost often like quite fun. Thank you. Um, yeah, and I, which is not what what one anticipates from from a horror novel. And I wonder <laughs> if you could just talk a little bit about your approach to language and how you um, developed the distinct voices for both sure. Art and Mercy. Um, I think part of the voices came from, uh, I wanted to do a book that was like really different than the previous two, which were Survivor Song and The Cabin at the End of the World. Which is both for a- Apocalypse. Novels. Yeah. Yeah. And also both, both were, I, I guess that thriller elements, like my publisher mm-hmm. was like, you know, which, you know, they can market however they want to, but like marketing is, is thriller, which is fine. But I was like, hey, you know, this next book's not going to be a thriller. Yeah. yeah just warning you. Um, nothing against thrillers. I just don't, that's not, I don't think that's where my general writerly interests lie. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, part, part of the break I was looking for, because both of those two previous novels really heavily and actively engaged with the awful now. Um, and I was, frankly, like a little exhausted. <laughs> so when the idea for the Paul Bears Club came up, I was like, oh, this is great. Like I can go more interior, you know, and tell a story over a much longer period of time because both those previous books, you know, Cabin was a day and Survivor Song was like six hours. Yeah. Um, you know, so I wanted to have voices that were a little bit different. So I actually started off with, I, I have a, a deep abiding love for novels. They probably have an official name, but uh, I call them, first person asshole novels <laughs> where, the, where the first person narrator is you know kind of cringy and embarrassing um but like you just can't not you can't help but like want to read more you know I'm right. thinking of like uh William Kennedy O'Toole's Confederacy of Dunces mm-hmm. um you know some of the books of Sam Lipsight uh there's a book uh, sadly should be read by way more people but Sarah Levine wrote a, a novel called Treasure Island with three exclamation points. Oh, wow. Um, oh, and it's so funny. It's so good. Um, you know, because it, it also seems like, not seems, I would say in, you know, in our patriarchal society, we readers have much less patience for uh, a woman asshole narrator, mm-hmm. it seems. So Although like if, there's definitely, I've been noticing a trend of, of the, the, the woman asshole narrator. Sure. Um, in novels, which is, I'm glad that it's starting. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and it, it, Atasha Marshvag, I think, does that quite a bit, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so like, I reread 
Treasure Island and dipped into Nabokov's Pale Fire, just to, mm -hmm. I don't know, just to like get me going. And I, and I reread a, a favorite memoir, which has a great title called Another Bullshit Night in Suck City <laughs> by, uh, by Nick Flynn. Amazing. Um, yeah, so I, was, I just want to read like all these sort of fun, different, quirky voices to try to, to get arts in particular. Um, you know, because art at time, like he starts off kind of manic, like super excited. And I wanted that to feel like, oh, hey, he's trying a memoir for the first time. And these opening pages, he's just full of ego and grandeur. Right. You know, right. and as you get deeper, yeah. like the voice sort of changes a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and it sort of goes with his mood too. Like when he's feeling better, I think he's a little bit more over the top. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I really wanted, I don't know, uh, for him to sort of find his own, <laughs> find his own unique voice, which I hope isn't too annoying. It's supposed no. to be a little annoying, but not too annoying. <laughs> not so annoying that you put it down. Definitely. Right. Um, no, he's wonderful. And that immediacy of, of when he's in a good mood uh, or when he's not, or when he's feeling um, bad is very apparent, um, which I think is part of why he feels like such a distinct person um, who I can just see sitting there writing. Somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because this is a podcast, you can't see that Mercy's um, sections are handwritten. Correct. Um, did you, was that all the publisher? Or did you want, did you have a hand in that? Um... Uh, yeah, that was all me. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, I definitely had two hands pushing them two hands. that. Two hands. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I tried to warn my editor because we're like, um, this book I pitched to her before she could see it to, to get back on book deal. So when mm -hmm. she first heard of it, it was 30 pages in a, a very rough summary. Yeah, I said, "Hey, you know, there's going to be these comments in the margins that really needs to be part of it." And she's kind of like, mm -hmm. "Yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> um, I got a, like a tiny bit of push it back just initially, but like right away when she read the, the novel in full, she knew it, it kind of had to be that way. And to, to William Morrow's credit, they really went um, above and beyond, particularly with the hardcovers, uh, mm -hmm. the first edition hardcovers. Mercy's handwritten comments will all be in red ink. Oh wow, uh, which is amazing. And I know some of the early e-galleys, there was a lot of formatting issues, but I'm told, <laughs> I'm told the actual e-books that will be sold should look like they're, that will look like they're supposed to. I believe that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, my so, e-galley was haunted, so. <laughs> yeah. So no, they, they were awesome. Although my editor was like, you know, just think about this next time you do a book. And I, she doesn't like my return joke, which is, oh, the next one's going to have pop-up pages and holograms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and smells and sounds. It's going to be oh, like yeah. the whole yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. um, what is next? Are you working on another novel? I am. So what's next, though, is a, a short story collection coming out just about a year from now. Oh, cool. Um, and it's called uh, The Beast You Are. Nice. So it's most actually there'll be some older stories mixed in with newer ones and sort of the, the title piece of the collection is by far the biggest piece and it's original to the collection. I wrote a 30,000 word anthropomorphic animal novella Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> that features a giant monster and a cat that's a serial killer I'm or so slasher, a slasher, I should say. <laughs> and I, I wrote it in free verse um, just because I know what <laughs> what mainstream America wants in their books. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, I don't know if this is a good sign or a bad sign, but it's the most fun I've ever had writing. I was actually like laughing out loud when I was writing some parts. I don't know if that's good. That's a great sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully, I think that's a lot of fun. Basically, like I took my love for 
Watership Down, like Secrets of Nim or The Rats of Nim, if you know, that's the book title, I think, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Animal Farm, just, I don't know. I've always wanted to write some anthropomorphic animal thing, like most people do at some point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's pretty wild. I think it's fun. Hopefully people dig it. I am all, I already think it's fun, so. <laughs> Thanks. Um, that's exciting. And do you have, what other um, <clears throat> kind of books might you recommend to folks out there who, who love your work? Oh, um, so one that's coming out shortly, uh, it's a short story collection called Corpse Mouth by John Langan, oh, cool. um, which is great. You know, John's like one of, one of our best horror writers. Um, Oh, I'm so bad at thinking of books. So I'm going to give you one that's sort of taken over my life, but it won't be available until February. But believe me, <laughs> that the wait will be worth it. Okay. Uh, it's a novel called Our, Sh Our Share of Night, uh, written by Mariana Enriquez, uh, Argentinian author. And it's 700 pages long. The publisher described it as Roberto Bolaño meets Stephen King. And I think that's a pretty, pretty good comparison. Yeah. Uh, it's a maybe more Bolaño meets like cosmic horror. But it's just such an amazing book. I don't know how you feel, but like as an adult and I'm getting older, you kind of feel like, oh yeah, you know, the, my, my list of like top five favorite books mm -hmm. is probably set in stone. You know, you think you're not going to encounter one, but no, this, this book for me is one of my favorite novels I've ever read. Oh, wow. It was just so exciting as a, I'll say a 50 year old <laughs> to, to be like, <laughs> oh, I can still find like my favorite novel. I mean, it's amazing. So look for it in February. In the meantime, though, if you have not read Mariana Enriquez before, read mm -hmm. her collection, uh, things we lost in the fire, um, which is one of the best collections I've read in, ten, in the last ten years. Yeah, she's quite so, brilliant. I'm yeah, so excited. Absolutely. Um, and also very excited for the Paul Bearers Club, which I think by the time this airs will be out. Um, yeah, July fifth. Yeah. So um, again, today we had Paul Tremblay, whose book The Paul Bearers Club comes out on July fifth. Confirmed. Um, pick it up at Skylight Books. And thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Paul, for being here today. Thank you so much, Hallie. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.